Sukhasu. So this afternoon we return to the Shamatu without a sign. <clears throat> this time probing in perhaps even a bit more deeply into our actual experience of being someone in here who's looking, who's meditating, who's observing. So again to place this in context. Okay, the, the air conditioning is turned on, yeah? Good, yeah. <laughs> slowly, slowly. Um, to play this in context, it's helpful to remember, I think, that as the Buddha taught, the mindfulness of breathing, he taught this in 16 phases and really said this practice of mindfulness of breathing can take you all the way to becoming an arhat. Not just by developing samadhi, of course, but by developing samadhi, achieving shamatha, but then by observing these jhana factors arising, the bliss, the sense of well-being and so forth, and then not simply enjoying them, which is very easy to do, but then bringing in for the final 12 phases of the 16-fold path of anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, bringing in this inspection, really examining how these jhana factors, how they arise, the factors of origination, the factors of dissolution, whether they're permanent, impermanent, whether they're by nature dukkha or not dukkha, whether self or not self. And by gaining that insight, mindfulness of breathing can take you all the way to becoming an arhat. And then I was reading through again, I, I don't know how many times I've read it, um, the passages on the practice of settling the mind in its natural state in the Vajra essence. I was glancing at that this afternoon. He actually calls it semalamdu kyarwa, sem, taking the mind as the path. The mind as your coarse mind, taking that which is already there and saying, okay, you already got it, you might as well hop in and take it for a ride. You know, taking that as your path, or one would say maybe nowadays taking it as your vehicle. Uh, a statement leapt out at me that I read today that I'm sure I've read many times, but it never leapt out at me before. And that he, he said, Dushan Lengba said, that for those of superior faculties, like Bahia, who could hear one little Dharma talk and become liberated. He said, for those of superior faculties, the practice of taking the mind as your path may take you directly to liberation in the great expanse. In other words, you may realize Rigpa by taking this little, little bitty shamatha practice of settling the mind in its natural state, by just carrying right on through without grasping and just slip right on through Teflon mind, Teflon mind from coarse mind to substrate consciousness slip right on through. So even settling the mind can be sufficient, in principle. And we know, of course, because I've mentioned this in the past, Padmasambhava, when speaking of awareness of awareness, or shamatha without a sign, he says this may be sufficient for realizing rikpa, pristine awareness. And specifically the method that we did yesterday and the one we'll return to today, which is really designed to probe inwards, break through the shells, break through the layers of frozenness, or ossification, where we get stuck. So yesterday, and I will not give a big talk on physics today, just maybe a few, a couple of references, and I would want to be a bit shorter to make sure we do have time for question and answer. So I'll try to take that seriously. Um, but this this manner in which we conjure up the world, and not as pure fancy, but as if you look at physics, it's not a fanciful. It's not just poetry. It's not we'll just kind of make up any poem you like. It's very expensive, for starters. You know. And the, the research is very, very rigorous. It's replicable. But, of course, it's always using a system of measurement, which gives rise to information. And so, genuine insight. So there's a middle way here. And it's a very important one. 
the insights from modern physics and, of course, other branches of science. Uh, they're legitimate insights. They are profound insights. They also have many practical applications. One errs only when one comes to the conclusion, uh, this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that is, this is now what is being discovered through these different modes of inquiry is now describing something that exists independently of all systems of inquiry, absolutely out there objectively. And that is what is being really challenged and refuted in modern quantum cosmology and by some of the most brilliant physicists living today, Anton Seilinger, Stephen Hawking. So again, this is, I mean, I have to emphasize that this is not New Age physics, not when you have people like Anton Seilinger, Paul Davies, um, a, name, a name I didn't mention yesterday, but mention it very briefly now. Paul Davies, again, drawing from John Wheeler's work, Quantum Cosmology, and looking at the role of what John Wheeler called the observer-participant. The role of the observer-participant in the natural world. And it's the, the, the observer-participant that makes the world unfold. That makes the world possible. No observer-participant, no world. And so John Wheeler described the whole universe as an information-processing system. You know, where information is fundamental, mind, matter, space-time, energy are all derivative, of course, being fabricated out of, intelligently conceived out of, information. But then, of course, there is no information without somebody who is informed, and the one who is informed is the observer-participant. Because you're not just watching there blandly, as a idle bystander, but actively participating. Now, very interesting point that Paul Davies, another very distinguished theoretical physicist, written, I think, a whole book on the problem of frozen time. And he said, if you look at the mathematics of quantum cosmology and you take out the observer-participant, just, okay, never mind, let's just have the objective universe, but no observer-participant, no, no one who's informed. He said, then you've got a problem of frozen time, and that is the whole universe is static. Nothing happens. The world does not evolve. There's no change in the universe without the intrusion, the intervention of an observer-participant. And specifically, the observer-participant has to say, now, has to cut into the fabric of reality, into this superposition state of an unformed reality that is only a world of potentiality, has to intervene with now. And once you have now, then you can have yesterday and tomorrow. You have the past and the future, but relative to now. But if there's no now, then there's no after now or before now. There's no time, it being no time, there is no change, no change. The universe is frozen. Without observer participants, the universe is frozen. There's no change. That's from a physicist. Sounds like it from, should, should be from a science fiction writer. But it's from a very distinguished physicist, right up there among the top. So, in this practice, Oh, and just one little caveat, which is quite nice. I've spoken from straight physics of phenomena prior to measurement existing in a superposition state, which is a probabilistic state, a range of probabilities that can be mathematically calculated. That's why mathematics is so powerful in quantum mechanics, as in all other branches of physics. So, but before the measurement, it's just a realm of probability, or possibility. Interestingly enough, maybe it's mere coincidence, maybe it's a bit more. One of the synonyms for the conditioned world, the world of nature, including, of course, mental states, is, is sipa in Tibetan. Sipa means it's referring to the world. 
But what, what it literally means is possible. A realm of possibility. Sipa. The realm of possibility. And then the conceptual mind comes in. Now a straight Buddhism. The conceptual mind comes in. Sees the array of appearances which do not define or name themselves, do not congeal themselves into objects that have attributes, just appearances, what physicists would call information. But now let's just stick to Buddhism. We just get appearances arising, empty appearances arising. But then the conceptual mind attends to them and then imputes, projects. Ah, there's Katinka. What I'm getting? Appearances. Appearances of color, of shape. I could touch her knee, then there'd be tactile sensations, and so forth. But then, no, the conceptual mind, no, no, Katinka has this form. She has blonde hair. She has, she has, she has this texture. Her body has this degree of firmness, and so forth. She has, and so conceptualization comes in and literally objectifies, makes objects, right? And so, from the realm of possibilities there, Conceptual, conceptualization comes in and makes a world of actualities. Actualities. Mupo, it's called in Tibetan. Real things. Real things. Inner and outer. So, quite interesting, I think. So this practice of awareness of awareness. It is like the path of settling the mind in its natural state, a path of discovery, of self-discovery, of knowing who we are, in the practice of settling the mind in this natural state, that path is taking us very much through the coarse mind, the conceptual mind, the mind with a personal history, with emotions, hopes, fears, and so forth. So it's like one of those slow trains that stops at every little village. And so you can see, you know, from Paris to oh, Martigny or whatever, every single stop. Then you get it. This memory, that memory, this emotion, this emotion, this desire, this anger, this resentment. Wow, lots of stops. Lots and lots of stops. But then by the time you've taken one of those slow trains, more like a bicycle really, then you know you ride through France on a bicycle and you get a really good idea of what the landscape is. Zip through it, you know, 300 kilometers an hour, you don't get that much of a sense of what the scenery is like because it's all blurred. And only when you stop do you kind of get a clear, clear sense of where you are. And so it's settling the mind in this natural state. You're, you're taking the mind, this coarse mind, as your vehicle. It's your train. And you're traveling from the surface level of your mind down to the substrate, the next stop. But your eyes are wide open all the way through. You're really seeing. Obviously not every memory you've ever had or a memory of every experience you've had. There's no time for that. But you're getting a good sampling from the surface level right down to the substrate. A path of self-knowing. Now, within that bandwidth, from the substrate up to our ordinary conscious mind, mental processes of which we can be immediately aware, we see that we, with this conceptual mind that speaks and thinks in Spanish, English, Norwegian, German, Italian, and so on, then we were like novelists, and we write the story of ourselves in our own language, right? And we write the story of the people around us. If you described, if I, I said, please, in one or two pages, describe the people who have come to this retreat. You know, the people who are in this room right now. And you write. Well, you'd be writing out of your conceptual mind based upon your observations. And so becoming very much out of that dimension of mind, 
if I should ask, well, please write a one-page bio, a bio-sketch of yourself. It would come out of that. And so there's an enormous amount of editing comes in. That is, so much we forget, so many things we remember, never happened. And then other things heavily interpreted, interpreted by assumptions, expectations, and so forth. And it goes equally outwards as it goes inwards. We can assume and expect things about ourselves, which were never true, but we kind of assumed they were, right? As we can for everybody around us, situations, places, and so forth and so on. So there's that whole bandwidth of the of the weaver, the weaver of the fabric of reality, coming out of coarse mind, weaving reality. And so the, the raw stuff, the thread, so to speak, the yarn, is coming from the appearances. It's rather, rather like that. So here's the yarn, here's the yarn, the yarn that's being dished up. But then how will you weave it? It's the coarse mind that weaves it into the familiar world that you believe you inhabit and the familiar person that you think you are, right? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's telling a good story. There's not a bad thing. We're all storytellers. The only problem is when we start taking our story so seriously that we feel we discovered it rather than authored it. And that goes for ourselves as well as others, feeling that we're simply discovering. Whereas, in fact, we are weaving it all along. Not out of nothing. Weavers don't weave blankets, shawls, and so forth out of nothing. But weaving it out of the appearances that arise, making sense of them, weaving them into a story that makes sense to us, that we feel comfortable with, such that things are familiar. So even when we encounter things, it's a very deep psychological truth, very well known, that when we encounter an anomaly, this is true for scientists, poets, artists, everybody, when we encounter an anomaly, something that we've just never seen before, something that is just utterly out of the ordinary, there's a very deeply ingrained habit of the human mind to make sense of it in terms of the familiar. And we do. It's very rare to to remain in a state, I think in Heideggerian or Heideggerian Husserian philosophy, I think it's called epoche, epoche, a state of suspended judgment where you just you're just holding it fluid without going in and making sense of it, locking it into a framework that's familiar. Just holding that freshness, that unprecedentedness, holding the anomaly and letting it be an anomaly. The mind, the habitual mind, has a tremendous tendency, profound impetus, to make sense and make sense in a familiar way. And that way we close off the novel, make sure we don't see it. Not voluntarily, but it's a deep, deeply ingrained habit. So there's our familiar world the surface. But now in this practice, clearly the, the idea in the shamatha without a sign, rather than taking the slow train or the bicycle from the surface level of mind down to the substrate, like you do in subtly in the mind, here we're pretty much taking the express train with the blinds turned down. Right? As much as possible. We're not even looking out the window. Right? That's it. We're not looking at any appearances. We take no interest. Now, they still come. Well, okay, those, those blinds keep on popping up. But as much as we can, we just pull the blinds down. Okay, I'm just, I'm just going to be in the train. Let me know when we're there. And then, oh, bliss, luminosity. Okay, I must be there. Oh, good. Oh, yes, I'm nowhere at all. Good, I've arrived. 
you know. And so there's the there's the fast train from your psyche down to the substrate consciousness. But now you're into that. It's almost like a teeming cauldron. It's not to say it's disturbing. It's not to say it's really interesting. A lot of things bubbling up, but you're there just in a sea of potential. That is your substrate consciousness is just ready to effulge into a dream, into a waking state, into imagination, whatever you like. It's just brimming. It's kind of ready to be turned on, to erupt forth with very subjective modes of awareness. And that whole holodeck of the substrate, that is that three-dimensional space of the mind, is like a dream that hasn't been turned on yet. It's just a space in which the dream, the dream appearances are ready to spring forth. Well, that same substrate consciousness is often called the storehouse consciousness. And loosely speaking, it can be said to be the storehouse of all of your karmic imprints. Karmic imprints that propel you into this lifetime as a human being will propel you into another lifetime as a deva, into another lifetime as a asura, or what have you. But this is the conveyor. But how? Because the, philosophically speaking, when one starts to turn this into a philosophical construct, this alaya vijnana, which is done in the Yogacara or Chittamatra mind-only school, then it gets refuted by the prasangikamata, majimikas. So I don't want to go into too much technicality here. But as a philosophical issue, this philosophical construct, heavily laden with a lot of philosophical bells and whistles, gets completely refuted by the prasangika majimika, a majamaka system, advocated by Sonnet Dalalama and Tsongkhaba and many, many others. Um... And I think fundamentally, it's because it's reified. So let's just take that example that I gave yesterday to show how important it is not to reify the substrate consciousness. In Dzogchen, I've seen no indication that the substrate consciousness is reified. I don't see anything you can refute. You may not experience it. But to think that one, one yogi could have the experience of the substrate consciousness and a philosopher would come along and say, no, you didn't, that's very thin ice. I just don't see that as being viable. Okay? Because it's not something the yogi constructed by thinking about it a lot. It's something by releasing all thought and seeing what was left over. So, there, I would say, with a lot of confidence, and of course I can be wrong, but I'll still be confidently wrong, that uh, the Dzogchen presentation and description of substrate consciousness, alaya vijnana, is completely compatible with prasanga kamajyamaka. I say that with a lot of confidence. When I see the teachings on emptiness, in the Dujum Lingba literature that I've studied perhaps most carefully, it's completely compatible with Prasangakamajamaka. But let's come back to the analogy I gave yesterday of asking Kachinka to raise her left arm. And so I said it in a language that is common to us, and I did it in a courteous way, and she courteously let, raised the arm. And so one could say, well, okay, I conveyed information. I, I conveyed a request. I did so politely, and she politely agreed and did what I asked, right? How did that happen? Because of information transfer, right? Because when I said it in Tibetan, I knew what I was saying. She didn't. If I'd asked Andrea, if he wanted to agree, then he would have raised his right arm because the information was conveyed. But to Kantinka, not being a Tibetan language speaker, there was no information conveyed, even though the sounds were more or less the same. They weren't louder or softer. or They were just different sounds. So we would say that when I say, Kantinka, please, ra- please raise your left arm, we would say the information there, that's what I was doing, right? It was a request. It was information. That's why, that's why matter moved. Her arm, big chunk of, you know, matter went up and down. Not that big, but, you know, reasonably. <laughs> uh, 
Where was the information located? Man, information, I, I knew I wanted to say something. I wanted to convey it to her. So that information, please raise your arm. This is a request. Please raise your arm. Where was that, where was that loca- information located? Well, it was, since I didn't do a psychic transmission, dee, 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 mm. you know, it was from my mouth. <laughs> it was from my mouth. It was sound waves. It was little gusts of air coming out with a ripple in them. And so those vibrations in the air, carried by, of course, what we call sound, Sound, when it hears the ear, it becomes sound when it gets to the visual auditory cortex. But the information we say was carried in the sound waves. Blah, 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 blah. That's sound waves too. No information. Please raise your left arm. That's information. So where is the information located? In the sound waves, right? In the ripples in the atmosphere. Right? I mean, how else would the information get from here to there? And it traveled at that speed. If she were a half a mile away and I shouted really loudly, she would have raised her arm a little bit later, clearly. So the information must be located in the sound waves, in the ripples of the atmosphere, right? But if any physicist looked at those ripples, scrutinized them physically, objectively, scientifically, do you think they're going to find any information in the sound waves? Nowhere there. So where was the information? Inside her brain? There's no information in the brain. Not objectively. If somebody opened up her brain, very gently, you know, a magician, <laughs> and took all the parts out, laid them on a table, you know, you know, to spread them all out, they would find a lot of gucky, yucky stuff. I mean, glial cells and, you know, and one thing they wouldn't find in all of the matter and the energy of her brain is any information. No information in there at all. No information in the sound waves. If you look at them, it's not there. And if you look at my brain or in my tongue or my larynx, you're not going to find any information there either. It's nowhere to be found. As something objectively there in matter, nowhere to be found. right? And yet information was conveyed. So nominally speaking, okay, we don't really mean it, but we'll say information was conveyed, carried with the sound. But it's not in there. And likewise, information, karma, karmic imprints, are carried with the stream of consciousness. But if you looked in the stream of consciousness, you're not going to find any information. You're not going to find any karmic imprints. It's not really a storehouse, like a train holding, you know, a whole bunch of carriages full of coal. It's not like that. Right? And that's what the prasangikas were really after. Don't reify, for heaven's sakes. Because don't reify anything. So on that level, if we go down to the substrate consciousness, you've now gone subhuman, more primal than this human configuration of human body, human mind, you've gone down to a continuum that is prior to specification as a species, human, animal, deva, and so forth. You're down there to the level of appearances. And the appearances are ripening, manifesting, because of karmic imprints. And of course, these continua of consciousness, the substrate consciousness, are not isolated. They're profoundly entangled. They're by nature entangled. That is, right now, there are 40, 41 people in this room hearing the same sounds. People listening by podcast, probably not right now, but some, you know, certainly not right now, but later, they may be listening to this too, sprinkled all over the world. I don't know how many. But then there's something collective taking place here, right? And we're meditating here together. We'll be soon. So that's collective. So there's a lot of collective karma. There's individual karma. 
And this is said to be the most complex aspect of the whole natural world, karma. How sentient beings of the same species can be experiencing what seems to be a very similar environment. Not because there's some absolutely objective world out there of space-time, matter, and energy, but because of shared collective karma. Right? In the same space, now we're really going to Buddhism, in the same space, in this space right here, if we are a group of devas going into meditation, with the collective karma of the devas, with the appearances from the substrate consciousness of the devas arising, they would be experiencing right where we are a very, very different environment. And they would see it objectively. They would see it, that's where they are. Right where we are. If there were a group of pretas taking a little time out from being hungry and they're meditating, they could be right here too and they would see another set of appearances, another set of objects coming out as they conceive of and try to make sense of their environment. Pretas, animals of different species, devas, asuras, and so forth. And so we are making the world of objects out of the appearances arising, but the appearances arising are related to our past karma. That's, what's, that's, that's where the threads come from, from that level. And so the substrate consciousness is your baseline for your birth and rebirth as sentient being in the first worldview. So that's knowing thyself beyond your humanness, certainly beyond your gender or ethnicity. It's knowing thyself down to the level of sentient being, core, raw, stripped down to the naked. This Here you are. You're not liberated. You're still, this is your baseline. This is your basis of operation. You can spring from here to be a human being, a man, a woman, and so forth. But this is where you're always coming back to. You're a rubber band. This is where you're slack. You come back to the substrate. Back to the substrate. And you've got all these, all this energy to propel you off, to stretch you out into the formless realm, the form realm, deva, human, and so forth. But as soon as the energy's gone, you snap right back. Back to the substrate consciousness. So that's whole realm of Appearances, and they're called impure appearances. Impure appearances because those imprints are created, they're conditioned by a mind that is dominated by mental afflictions, most fundamental of which, of course, is delusion. And so that, that's the nature of the appearances there. They're empty, but they're very powerful. Just as in a dream, you can have a dream that just ter just terrifies you. That may be still having emotional aftershocks days, days afterwards. Just so terrified you. Certainly true. And because of some appearances arising in the dream. Right? But the response to it, because you reify it, can be just as strong as if it was during the waking state. Right? So from this point, we hit kind of a baseline. Kind of a baseline. This substrate consciousness. So then one can ask, how do you break through how do you break through those impure appearances that are rising out of that that domain of the substrate, substrate consciousness, which is carried on in this self-perpetuating cycle? How do you penetrate through to a deeper dimension of reality in your ongoing quest of knowing who you are, your own nature, the nature of your own awareness? So to break through the impure appearances, you've got two major strategies. And I think I'll probably stop at this point. Wanted to stop around five o'clock. Got two major strategies. They both depend, absolutely depend, on your not only not reifying the appearances, that is taking them to be really existing from their own side, 
as we always do in a non-lucid dream, it's not enough just to stop reifying them, because that's like the little Johnny who just stopped thinking that he was a chicken, or stopped thinking that he was a kernel of corn. He just stopped thinking it, right? And he seemed quite normal. But all they had to do is bump into a chicken, and then the old imprints, I'm a kernel of corn, pop right out again, and so he was in the same problem. So this mere fact that he'd stopped thinking that he was a kernel of corn didn't solve anything. It just made him feel okay for a while. But he was ready to suffer like ever. So it's not that silly a joke. I think it's a pretty good joke. Right? And so just stopped, you know, not reifying appearances for a while makes you feel normal, makes you feel okay. But if the imprints, the tendencies to reify that which appears objectively, reify that which appears subjectively, oh, this is why I really am. If that's not shattered by really fathoming the nature of appearances, and now we come back to classic Mahayana Buddhism, Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Apart from emptiness, there is no form. Apart from form, there is no emptiness. You've got to see that one. That form and emptiness are not two different things. Emptiness is not some abyss, some some great void on which appearances are projected. Somehow, there is a total non-duality, a primal non-duality. The appearances by themselves are empty. Emptiness itself is taking on form. And so that needs to be realized. And the according to the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition, and I think, man, I think they're right. They say, if you want to just, again, the express route, there are much more elaborate routes, very interesting routes, but if you want to take the express route to realizing emptiness in a way that will shatter the whole of samsara, shatter reification in every direction, and pardon me, I know it's a bit silly, but I enjoyed the... Which one? The final, yeah, it was the final Star Wars, and the, the one that should have been the final. You know, number three before they added the silly ones. <laughs> uh, when they, when Luke Skywalker did, I mean, the classic, one of the greatest scenes in all of movie history, when he went in there, threw out the autopilot, went there, and hit the Death Star in its one soft spot. You know, remember that? You can't, can't you can't forget it if you saw the movie. But that one soft spot, the rest of it was impregnable, couldn't get to it at all. It was like a Vajra. But it had one spot, where if he just nailed it there, it would go, ping. you know, just that one spot that would set up a chain reaction and blow the whole thing to smithereens and give rise to a happy ending of the movie. Right? But one one little thing, and then, and then all finished. Likewise, the, the sweet spot, the soft spot in the Death Star of Samsara. <laughs> is your own mind. To realize the emptiness of your own mind. If you get that one, that's a sweet spot. Get that one. And once you've seen that your own mind is utterly and primordially empty of inherent nature, then, kaplow, all appearances to the mind. And that's all appearances of everything. Planets, galaxies, atoms, bodies, everything. All appearances have to be empty if that which apprehends them is empty. It all falls apart. It all dissolves. Reification gets shattered from the core. So it's a very smart strategy. It's the express train. Right? Realize that. Once you've realized that all appearances, including the completely human ones that we concoct, that we configure, that we can, that we weave with our coarse mind, but also these subtler ones, these more primal appearances just arising from karma before they're processed, packaged as human, deva, and so forth, 
The appearances themselves are empty. All appearances, subjective and objective, empty, the very bifurcation of subject-object, empty, all empty, great empty. From that realization, having had that realization, the appearances still arise. It's like being in a a lucid dream, being in a non-lucid dream, becoming lucid. Things, once you're lucid, still appear to be really there from their own side. You know they aren't, but they still appear to be really over there. It's exactly the same thing in the waking state. Once you've realized emptiness, phenomena still appear to be really there, objectively and subjectively. Appear to be, but you know they're not. So now you've got to be clever. Because you want to break through not only the reification, the grasping under the true existence of appearances, but you want to break through to the ultimate ground. The Dhammadhatu, to pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. So you've got two strategies. One is the active, one is the passive. Having realized that all these impure appearances are empty, there's nothing really there, they're no more substantial than rainbows or dreams, then, with the power of your samadhi, if you don't have much power of samadhi, you're, you got nothing. So you really gotta have shamatha. But if you've got your shamatha, a really powerful mind, samadhi, laser mind, and you've got that realization of the emptiness of all appearances, if you've got those two, bear in mind your samadhi mind is not just a mind that can penetrate with great clarity, but it also has enormous creative capacity for visualization. Really, I mean, all you have to do is look. Look at his creativity. When you dream, you've got a whole dreamscape there that can look as about as real, as detailed, as radiant, as waking experience. That's the power of your mind when it's really focused. That's in deep sleep. That's even without developing samadhi. So if you've got that power on tap, and you're dealing now with these impure appearances, and you've, you really, you've got to break through them, then you can go into overdrive. Go into overdrive. Go into your realization of the emptiness of all appearances and then come out realizing all appearances are empty. Dissolve them with the power of your samadhi. Dissolve them in emptiness. And then generate a whole array of the environment, yourself, everything in your environment as pure appearances. You make one up. You generate it with the power of your samadhi and you do it with your best facsimile of being in a pure land, a Buddha field, yourself being a Buddha in the Buddha field, everyone around you being displays of body, speech, and mind of Buddhas. You do this out of your power of samadhi with your realization of emptiness, and now you override, you overwhelm impure appearances. You shout them down. You overwhelm them with something you've created, but which is a good facsimile of something that is primordially there, but you can't see it yet. So you generate something with the power of your mind that is a facsimile of something you would see if you could see clearly through the impure appearances. So there's one strategy. It's called stage of generation and completion. And the other strategy, approach of discovery rather than development, and it's called the stage of development, stage of generation. They call it what it is. And what Dujom Lingba says, if you're drawn to that, you like a more elaborate path? Go for it. Realize shamatha vipassana, then go stage of generation completion. Go for it. Go for it. If you're drawn to it, go for it. Follow your follow your bliss. 
But if you're really looking for the Dujon Express, one that's straight and has no frills, no, no extras, it's just a seat, straight through. Then you can skip the stage regeneration and completion, go directly to Tepture, the breakthrough. And with no visualization, not modifying, creating, conjuring up anything, just as all appearances arise from the substrate consciousness, the impure appearances, just release them all. Release them all. As you direct your awareness inwards, penetrating right through the substrate consciousness, break through that appearance. Until you penetrate through to Rigpa, the Steen awareness, from that vantage point, without visualizing anything, with increasing clarity, you will perceive all phenomena as being displays of Rigpa, your own appearances, your own face, and having no existence apart from Rigpa. So your whole environment, you and everything else, is transformed not by visualization, but by breaking through the coarse or impure appearances. And that happens through non-grasping. So it's a via negativa of a not doing, not doing, not doing, into not doing anything whatsoever and viewing reality from that stillness of pristine awareness. So that's a larger context. A larger context of this practice. So in one room, a Dzogchen master could be experiencing everything spontaneously as displays of Rigpa. A person who's accomplished in state of regeneration can be generating everything as displays of Buddha mind. A Preta could see a whole Preta world, a Deva, Deva world, and different human beings could be viewing it as a whole bunch of weirdos who have dropped a meaningful life and have come here somehow mesmerized by this California ex-hippie paid good money to watch their breaths. In other words, you all should be seriously analyzed because there's something profoundly wrong with you that you're here at all. And this charlatan up here, I don't know whether she, this should be even be legal. And if we were in communist China, it wouldn't be. A friend of mine, this would be the last note, a friend of mine, when I visited Russia many years ago, Soviet Union back then, it was 1985, I think it was. It's just, it's just a cute story and I'll stop. We were on a little peace mission. I was a Buddhist monk back then. Small group of us. Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, various people. I was the Buddhist. We went to Leningrad, Moscow. It was in Leningrad, I think it was. I was in contact, managed, that is, there was an underground, underground Buddhist group. They were not legal. Tibetan Buddhist group. And they were doing some translations, but they were keeping very, very low profile. The one guy flew out from Mongolia. And so there's one Mongolian and then these other Russians, small group of them, quite young. In our, in the th- all of us were in our thirties. So they met, they heard I was coming. I wasn't famous or anything, I was just a Buddhist. But they wanted to meet a Buddhist, you know, where it was legal. I mean, from the country it was legal to be a Buddhist. And so we met, and there was one, one guy in this group, his name, I remember his name was Constantine. Constantine. He was one of this little group of, Subversive Buddhists. And, uh, he had let the authorities, the Soviet authorities, know that he believed in reincarnation. When they heard that, they said, oh, you're insane. A clinically diagnosed him as insane. And anybody who believes in reincarnation, you're crazy. 
And so they, they sent him off to a mental, a mental asylum for therapy to get over his delusional belief that, you know, consciousness doesn't terminate at death. He was there for quite some time. Lots of therapy. Didn't work. Go figure, I don't know. They couldn't, they couldn't cure him. And so, but they found that he wasn't dangerous. So they released him, but released him as certifiably, yeah, certifiably insane, but not dangerous. And since he was insane, they gave him a lifelong pension. Because that's what you do to mentally disabled. If you have any compassion at all, you, you know, because they'll just wander around going, I used to be somebody in a past life. I used to be somebody in a past life. You gotta help those people, you know. <laughs> so he had a lifelong pension, thanks to the atheist government of Soviet, Soviet Union. So he could just practice meditation on learn Buddha Dharma. It's very charming. <laughs> and they never did cure him. Oh, that's so, let's find a comfortable position. Settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
Then with your eyes open for a little while, rest, doing nothing at all. With no doing, allow yourself just to be, to be present, to be aware, without taking anything as an object. Just being present without distraction, without grasping. And apply this skillful technique of breaking up this one meditative session into many short ones, each cycle of the respiration being a full session in itself, arousing, concentrating, and inverting your awareness in upon the experience of being aware, thereby remedying laxity, and then utterly releasing with a deep sense of relaxation, your awareness into the emptiness of space, thereby overcoming the tendency of excitation. Into awareness, out into space.
Then as you invert your awareness, inspect closely. Is there a sense of being the observer, the one in here who's, who is aware, the subject? Are you human? Do you have a face? Do you have a gender? Observe this lion at the gate on guard, preventing you temporarily from penetrating more deeply into the inner recesses of your own awareness. Recognize the appearance for what it is and see if it is anything more than an empty appearance. and therefore not really a subject at all. Just one more object. If you do an encounter, an appearance, it seems to, to be an appearance of you as a subject. Examine more deeply what is it that is observing that appearance. And this way break through the fabrications of your coarse mind, your ordinary sense of who you are, you, the meditator, the observer. Throw back the curtain and see what is observing that.
Is there a sense of a localized, still presence, a mindful presence that is quietly aware? with no form. But a place in time and space. Invert and release. Invert and release. If there is a lingering sense of there being someone in here, now, some amorphous presence perhaps, when you invert, carefully scrutinize. If you're in here, how big are you? Do you have a shape, a center and a periphery?
Release the oscillation. Release the effort. Let awareness rest right where it is. Illuminating and knowing itself.
Lasso. There's an interesting observation, and I think this will lead to a question from Carla. She says, I agree with you that compassion, loving kindness, uh, empathetic joy, and equanimity are good for us at all times. So universal or invariant virtues, I would say. But I can only conceive of them in the relation, in the relationship with other sentient beings. Quite so. Uh, how one could really get off the ground cultivating all of these just for oneself it would be extremely limited. There's no way it'd be boundless or immeasurable. In social isolation, I can only conceive of memories, imprints, conceptualization, and aspirations for them, but never the real thing. That's right. You don't, if you're in isolation, you're not with other people. So you need to be developing your compassion by way of, exactly, memories, imprints, and so forth. Could you explain a little better the Buddhist scholastic's understanding of the importance of long-term social deprivation for the achievement of genuine happiness, enlightenment, wisdom, or whatever goodness you can get out of being on your own for a long time, please. Yeah, happy to. Both modes of, let's say, lifestyle certainly have their value. We find a great being like Dingo Kinsetan, but I think it was, I think it was 14 years, from the age 13 to 27, I believe. 14 years. Really isolated, living in caves, melting in the snow around his cave, right through the winter at like 5,000 meters, with the heat of his dual practice. So really intense solitude, colored in between 12 years, and so many of these. And having spent that time, then colored in between was just a dynamo. I think he, he established something like over 200 centers around the world. You know, just tremendously active. Ningo Genzudimichi for then, pretty much by the time he got to his 30s, then he was a dynamo. So active, lived a long life, so active throughout the world. Uh, internationally, and, and in so many ways, writing and teaching and preserving texts and so forth. And so both of these have their place, but the question is, all right, well, it's kind of obvious why an active way of life would be good, and there you are engaging with real sentient beings, really connecting with them, feeling compassion. But in the midst of that, why? Why apart? Why not just be satisfied with a morning practice, you know, spend a couple of hours on the cushion and then go out and do something worthwhile? It's a perfectly good question. And isn't it easier to develop compassion when you have real sentient beings to bump into rather than just imaginary ones? You're conjuring up based upon memories. I, I understand that, yeah. There's a lot of sense to it. That's why I've often commented that when we leave here, while you may find your shamatha skills declining pretty rapidly from, like, Phuket Airport onwards, <laughs> your experience of the four measurables maybe just take off and be your four great friends, you know, when you leave here. So there's a lot of truth to this. But it does then raise the issue of being able to focus on one's practice without distraction. Because after all, it's simply an empirical fact. Then we're out in the world, not in a monastery, not in a hermitage. In a hermitage or monastery or a mind center, here we are with a lot of shared aspirations. I'm sure a lot of different beliefs, and that's as it should be. And I've now never even asked whether everybody here is a Buddhist. I don't, I don't really care. That was not on the questionnaire, you recall. But shared aspirations, we're here to practice. Shamatha for immeasurables, that's enough. That really is quite sufficient, right? But that means that there's a certain homogeneity that what we're doing makes sense to each other, you know? Where as soon as you step out of this, now, well, you're stepping out to a Buddhist country, then they'll still kind of make sense. But step outside of that, and then what we're doing here doesn't make much sense at all. And we know when we... That's why I said, you know, a bunch of crazy people would be shipped off to a, a mental institute. Um, but when we're out, when you go back home, you're going to 
probably bump into a lot of people who don't even really know or care what the word Dharma means. Buddhist, Christian, you can do anything. They're really, their world is the hedonic world. And so your social engagement from them, as they are totally enmeshed in hopes and fears, the hedonic way of life, it's going to be bound to bring up an awful lot of distractions. There it is. And you'll probably have a load of social obligations. You'll probably have work. You'll have internet. You'll have all of that stuff that's just going to unravel the coherence of your mind so that when you've socially engaged with people like that for eight or ten hours and then you come back to your cushion, unfortunately you're bringing all of them with you. You know, so now you'd like to be in solitude, except for they say, "Yeah, oh yeah, we'll all come and join you in solitude. Let's <laughs> let's be there together, and we'll and we'll 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 talk you through it." <laughs> so it's not so easy to step out. It takes a long time to step out, right? Uh, Genlam Rimba, Genlam Rimba, when when I first knew him in 1980, up there living there for years and years and years. In terms of the eight mundane concerns, here he is living in total poverty, twelve dollars a month is what he lived on. That's what the government gave him. 100 rupees. $12 a month. That was his living. That's what he lived on. And he was surviving. You know. And so he said, he said, your desires, your craving for material acquisition, well, you may as well just give up on that one. You know, going, you're getting nowhere. So that one was not a problem. Sensual pleasures, well, you're not getting any. A nice sunset's about all you can hope for. So forget that one. Praise, well, nobody's there to praise you or blame you. So forget that one. But as he's up in his meditation hut and looking down at McLeod Gunge, right there, he said the thought would still come up. They know I'm up here. <laughs> they know I'm up here. And they probably think I'm really cool. I'm really a great yogi. They're thinking about me. And I'm something special. He said that grasping onto reputation, that was the last one to go. The last one to go. So, it's not so easy to go to solitude. It's very easy to put your body in solitude and not so easy to put your mind in solitude. But then we come back, why bother? Well, number one, when you're in solitude and it's lingering solitude and it's solitude with a powerful motivation of compassion, powerful motivation for sanity, to achieve liberation, from an altruistic motivation, life becomes simple. If you have any companions at all, like that little cluster of meditation huts up there, the people around you all get it and they just don't do chit-chat. You know, they may talk a little bit, but chit-chat's not one of the things that comes up. You know, So it's very composed, it's collected, it's a samadhi way of life, it's a unified way of life. But now you are separated, so how can you cultivate bodhicitta, compassion, loving kindness? And well, the answer is you can. Your power of imagination becomes very, very strong. You can bring people to mind vividly, attentively. You can focus your mind on them and not just on the memories. But there's something else going on. And I think it makes all the difference. And that as your, as your mind becomes distilled, as you become unenmeshed from the noise, the junk of your coarse mind, the conceptual mind, and your mind starts to slip down into more that domain, that limp, limpid, transparent, luminous, and benevolent domain, deeper, deeper, substrate consciousness. Even people in an eight-week retreat here, just eight weeks without achieving shamatha, of course. Start, it's happened more than once. As you're just practicing mindfulness of breathing or awareness of awareness, whatever. Saying just out of the blue, a sense of unconditional love came up. It's happened more than once. They weren't even cultivating it. They were discovering it. So just in shamatha this can happen. But if you're complementing that with 
realization of emptiness, vipassana, complementing that with cultivation of bodhicitta, cultivating, cultivating. You're not just cultivating, you're unveiling. And the more you tap into this deepest dimension, into pristine awareness, then you discover the very roots of loving kindness, compassion, that is boundless. And so that's how that can happen. You discover it rather than having to conjure it up. So having, bringing people to mind by way of memories and so forth is just a way to access that that wellspring of loving kindness, compassion that's already there. I find it very difficult to get to get together, starting meditation, releasing all concerns about the future and the past, and arriving and the arriving in a, in a past life. Acha, sure, of course. When we're just settling body body, speech, and mind in the natural state, the idea here is give up all your thoughts about what happened yesterday and all the memories you've got. Release all your anticipations, hopes, and fears about the future. Just come into the present moment. Now, having done so, then you may settle your mind, you may achieve shamatha. Achieving shamatha, you may settle in the substrate consciousness. Settling there, settling there, you're just in the present moment. But the hypothesis is, and it really struck me, I love, I really, I, I really take delight in sharing dharma as an experimental science. I really enjoy that. I really, I, I enjoy in teaching. I wouldn't enjoy it nearly as much if I were teaching it as a religion. Okay, I'm not teaching you the truth. Now remember, this is the truth. You have to believe it, you know. So believe this, that if you achieve shamatha, then you will discover past lives. You do believe this, don't you? You know. Lama Zubhadramaji was once asked, is it necessary for us to believe in reincarnation to achieve enlightenment? And the answer came back, no. You need to know it. Not believe it. So, but there's the assertion. There's the hypothesis. Settle in the substrate consciousness. And if you wish, you can direct your attention to the past, unveil past memories that were previously veiled in this lifetime, and penetrate beyond. So there's really no contradiction there. It doesn't happen spontaneously necessarily, although when going very deeply into samadhi, in your dream state, this has certainly happened before. Where, where's the, where are the contents of the dream coming from? They're coming from the same imprints that are stored in the substrate consciousness. Right? Well, if you're going very, very deep, you're deep, you know, deeply into samadhi, deeply into long-term retreat, where the mind is distilled, very little junk or noise from the environment, you may have in your dreams the ripening, the maturation of imprints, not from this lifetime, but from past lifetimes. That can happen. Right? Or you may, while you're settling the mind in this natural state, as you're going really, really deep, stage seven, stage eight, and so forth, you may have memories coming up, not from this lifetime. It's also, also difficult for me to get together oneself without inherent existence and the recollection of one's past lives. And I understand that. There really, this is uh, one of the questions that comes up a whole lot, and I'll be very brief. And that is, what is carrying through time is not an immutable self that gets plunked down into lifetime to lifetime, an ego, a soul, an I. but simply a continuum, an ongoing flow, which is continually in flux, arising and passing moment to moment, this continuum of the substrate consciousness, there's nothing permanent about it in the sense of being unchanging. There is something indestructible about it. That is, you keep, there's no hammer big enough to make it become nothing. But the very sense of identity, who are you, emerges out of that. Out of that. Right? As a male, as a female, a human, and what have you, emerges out, dissolves back into that. And so this whole quest of know thyself, well, it starts out as we, as we take the tour through the settling the mind in its natural state, to know who we are as this individuated person in this incarnation. 
get to know that right down to the ground from which it arose, the substrate consciousness. And then you get to know yourself stripped bare as a sentient being, as a, as a, a stem cell sentient being. Because while you're resting right there in the substrate consciousness, you're not much of anything. You're not human being. You're not a dog. You're not a daily. You're not. You're not anything really. You're not. You're in, you're unformed. You're just sitting there in an ocean of potential, potentially arising with the human mind, potentially arising with a bunch of human appearances. But for that, you need eyeballs, and ears, and so forth and so on. So you'd have to come out, and then oh, here I am, got human body, great, you know. But when you're just resting there in the vacuum of your substrate, viewing it from the perspective of substrate consciousness, you're there. But it's very primal, pre-articulate, pre-verbal. But there you are, a naked, raw, sentient being, ready to become somebody. right? And that's the sense of identity you need to break through to realize who you really are. And that's Rigpa. So, something like that. Oh, yeah. Does the substrate dissolve after the black near attainment, near black attainment? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. If it does, what happens to the karmic imprints that are stored in it? Okay, now bear in mind how metaphorically the word stored is. What happens to those karmic imprints and how can they influence the condition of the next life? They just go dormant. What can one say? I think one, one thing, as soon as one, I found this in trying to talk about this at all, not that I know what I'm talking about, but, you know, I try. Uh, but as soon as one talks about experiences, phenomena that are immediately connected to Rikpa, right? Now, it's known. I mean, it's, the first thing you know about, if you learn anything about Rikpa, is it is by nature ineffable. Even if two great accomplished Vidyadatas have realized, completely realized Rikpa, they can't, either one of them, encapsulate it in words or thoughts to each other. Right? So there's that whole issue, that very mysterious issue, of mind transmission, gongyu, mind transmission, just from one Vidyadatta to another, or one Buddha to another, inconceivable that anybody is not there. But then transmission of sheer symbol, da, symbolic transmission, inconceivable to a person who is not there at the Vidyadara level. And then there's transmission by way of words, nyengyu, you're hearing, you're hearing it. Right? That we can conceive. Right? But the point here is that Rikpa, when you're there in that domain, absolute space of phenomena, dharma datu, Rikpa, primordial consciousness, it's by nature, it's untouchable. It's untouchable. You just cannot throw the net of thought or language over it and catch anything. It's like trying to catch water with a net. Right? So, okay, that, but that, everybody knows that. Okay, that's one of those things. Ineffable, inconceivable. But now, as soon as you say, oh, but, but how does it relate to? Like, we're going to be really sneaky. Okay, don't talk about Rikpa. Just tell me, how does Rikpa relate to substrate consciousness? As if we can kind of just drag it over, be really sneaky in it. Well, as soon as you try to, how does Rikpa relate to causality? How does Rikpa relate to karma? How does Rikpa relate to substrate consciousness? When substrate consciousness vanishes, how does it slip into Rikpa? How does it get out? How does karma... As soon as you try to raise anything that's directly to Rikpa, you've just found that the envelope of ineffability has gotten bigger. Is it so? That's my sense. You just, whatever words there are, they won't be adequate. And it said not only words, but even, what's the word? Be. Analogies. Even the analogies won't nail it. So there are plenty of analogies, but not, none of them capture it. So all they can do is take you nearer or further away. That's all the words, concepts, and analogies, the metaphors, the images, and so forth. All they can do is take you closer or farther away. So I can't answer the question. All that we would know is 
that people who do have karma, we, we know, okay, all that's stated is that people are still in samsara, into the blackout, your mind dissolves into, right? Then the blackout ceases, clear light experience, dhammata experience. And then if you're not realized, either by way of dhammakaya or sambhogakaya, now you're in the bardo, and once again you're propelled by karmic imprints. What's the mechanism for that? How do you transition in? How do you transition out? Ineffable. Problem. Maybe somebody can eff it, but I can't. For me, it's ineffable. Oh, yeah. And so, how is this related to other explanations that state that what actually travels is the mere eye? Mere eye. Okay, when we say the mere eye, now, of course, we're now, we're in the house of Sutrayana. In the house of Sutrayana. Uh, now, what that actually means is this mere eye. I have to say that, you know, I learned this a long time ago. I studied this, you know, probably 35, almost 40 years ago. The prasangika view, what carries on, uh, number one, refutation of substrate consciousness, alaya vijnana, but not a, not a refutation of the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. Nobody refuting that, not in mayana, right? But what carries the imprints? And then we get this nominal, this, this mere eye, the mere conceptual designation of eye that there is that designation carrying on. Who's the de- designator? There is no independent designator, right? So in this level, uh, I think that's about as far as you can go in the Sutrayana. Especially if by Sutrayana, one is referring to, one conceives of Buddha nature as potential. As potential. And many people do. It's your potential for achieving enlightenment. So I don't think I can do much more. Um... What I like to do is always bring it back to experience, you know, and not have to wait until we're dead. And so, when we're falling asleep, when we go deep asleep, maybe even lucidly deep asleep, maybe lucidly in a dream, what is it that connects all of those? Why do I still have a sense that I was awake, but now I'm lucidly dreaming? And I remember who I was before. That is, when I'm in the midst of a lucid dream, I remember who I was before I fell asleep. Right? And then when I wake up, then I remember, oh, that was my dream. I dreamed that I was such and such a person. Maybe the same, maybe younger, older, maybe a different person. Right? What is it that connects all of those? Waking state? Lucid, dreamless state? No form? Just that kind of localized sense of presence? Into a dream where you may have a form, you may not. You may be a localized presence in a dream. You don't always get a body. And then waking up there, you got a body. But having a sense, yeah, that was, I, I, last night I was lucid in my dream, uh, dreamless sleep, one might say. Last night, oh, I was lucid in the dream. Oh, last night, it took me a long time to get to sleep. What's the connection? What holds all of those together? The mere designation I. So I find it very useful to find the microcosm and say, okay, now that's something we can explore. And then say, okay, like that. So you can become lucid in a dream, then you get some intimation of what it's like to be lucid in the bardo. You ever wonder about beginningless, beginninglessness of samsara? Ever ponder that one? How about the beginninglessness, beginninglessness of a non-lucid dream? When have you ever been in a non-lucid dream and remember when it began? It began in unawareness, it began in unknowing, otherwise you would have been lucid from the beginning. If it began in knowing, then the first moment of the dream is say, oh, I'm dreaming. In which case it has a beginning. 
But since you didn't know, it began in unknowing. And so from within the lucid dream, the dream has no beginning. Because when it began, there was no knowing. But now, if you say when it began, in Buddhism, for something to exist, it must be knowable by a valid cognizer. But who knows when your dream began? Are you going to resort to the Buddha? Somebody clairvoyant? Some outside agency? So from within samsara, your dream has no beginning. But that doesn't mean it went on forever. It just means it had no beginning from because within your perspective, as a non-lucid dreamer, the beginning of the dream was never known and it wasn't even knowable. It was not knowable because it was a non-lucid dream. Therefore, your non-lucid dream has no beginning. It does have an end. As samsara has no beginning, but may indeed have an end. How about your last wandering thought? Rumination, when you're caught up. The last time you lost your mind. When did you begin? When was the beginning of that wandering thought? From within the context of the wandering thought, you don't know because you've been, if you had known when it began, it wouldn't be a wandering thought. It would have been a lucid thought and you would have been known when it began. But since you didn't know, from within the context of the non-lucid thought, it has no beginning. But it does have an end. So I like the microcosms. I think this is something to wrap our minds around. I don't find it so helpful to start with a macrocosm that I can't even imagine and have no way of exploring. There's all kinds of conundrums. All kinds of conundrums if we assume that samsara really is literally infinite. This means Isifis has tried to achieve shamatha an infinite number of times. And here you are. How are you doing? <laughs> Each of you has tried an infinite number of times to practice vipassana and realize emptiness. How's that working out? Each of you has encountered Dzogchen infinite number of times. How far did it get you? I think there's problems there by being overly literal. Dujum Lingba says this whole notion of takes three countless eons. He said, you might want to pause for a minute. Maybe that's not literal either. Okay, one quickie. Would you explain the meaning of mantra? Yeah, mind protection. Okay, good. O mani bemahum. Yep, the six realms of existence. Quintessence of compassion. What's the benefit of reciting mantras? Big blessing. Find out for yourself. What is it said? What is it said that during sadhana or mantra? Uh, sadhana? No, sakadawa, or our merit. Aha. Why is it said that during sakadawa our merit are multiplied? <laughs> I find some of the statements a little bit hard to accept literally. That's just me. That's just my opinion. But really, if, if one day all of your merit is worth like a hundred thousand times or a million times more, in a way, again, why, why bother the other 364 days? <laughs> you know, the investment is just save up your energy. Save up your energy. And that day, just don't sleep. <laughs> Just save up sleep, 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 sleep. And on that day, the next 364 days, man, that was a good one. <laughs> you know? So I can't answer that. Um, boy, pizza. Pizza, Sam Hell enemy. I don't know. I don't know. 
in Kala Chakra, not the Sakadawa issue so much, but Sakadawa in the Kala Chakra system, which is, it, it takes the theme of microcosm, macrocosm, like no other system. There's nothing to compare to it, Kala Chakra. It's just, it's, it, it blows your mind. It's almost like your skull's gonna break open when you read it. It's so vast. It's stated that, for example, on, there's a solar or lunar eclipse. Because of the outer movement, there's also similar inner movement of the side channels, the sun channel, the moon channel. Outer, inner, a confluence. Big time to practice Dharma. Goes to a more modest level for full moon, for no moon also. But eclipses, big time. Said that the Buddha achieved enlightenment when there was an eclipse. Energies come into the center. That makes some sense to me. The rest, I don't know. Finally, you got me. I mean, I didn't know much at all. I was putting on a good show, but this one, frankly, I have no idea. No idea. Maybe it's blessed. Or maybe it's just the Lama saying, man, we couldn't get you to practice Dharma the rest of the year. Maybe we say this a hundred thousand times, maybe you'll do something, get off your butts and do something this day. I mean, a hundred thousand and give us rest. Try. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, good. So, we have a couple more for tomorrow. It's already Thursday. Week is whizzing by. So tonight you might, you might, as you're falling asleep, and also if you wake up in the middle of the night, just go into awareness of awareness. Sweet and simple. And note that there's just nothing between you and your rigpa. Nothing between you and pristine awareness. Then just veils of concepts. So keep on tapping on the door. Be patient. Yeah. Oh yeah. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs>